From ESPN Films and ESPN Audio, you're listening to 30 for 30 Plus, presented by the Mini Countrymen. My name is Jody Avergan. This is our series of bonus conversations about some 30 for 30 films. We are doing these in between our proper seasons of audio documentaries. And our next season of audio documentaries launches next week, November 14th. But in the meantime, this week on 30 for 30 Plus, the life of the nature boy, Ric Flair. Flair made his name during pro wrestling's rise in the 1980s. He thrilled fans with his flashy robes, Rolex watches, and bragging about money, women, and fame. The gimmick fit with the excess of the era, but unlike other wrestlers, Flair really was his character. What you saw was what you get. If I said my alligator shoes cost more than what you made last month, I meant it. After 40 years in the ring, Flair is a living legend. Many consider him the greatest wrestler of all time. But as the new 30 for 30 film Nature Boy explores, his status has come with a heavy price. Wrestling sexiest superstar, please welcome Rick Flair! The 1980s was the perfect time for wrestling, and I was the perfect wrestler for the 1980s. Right life! Big cities! Pretty ladies, nature boy! I've sacrificed everything for wrestling. We were lucky enough to land two interviews for this, one with Rory Karp, who directed the film, and another with the nature boy himself, Ric Flair. So in a bit, I'll chat with Rick about some of the things that are not in the film, like the health issues that put him in a coma for nearly two weeks. But let's start this podcast with some of my conversation with Rory. I began by asking him why he chose to make a film about Ric Flair, especially given that there's so many larger-than-life characters in pro wrestling to choose from. Well, that's a good question. You know, in this world of professional wrestling, you know, everyone kind of plays a character. But in reality, they're pretty much not that guy you know like jake the snake wasn't a huge snake lover and hulk hogan didn't really i think say prayers and eat vitamins and live this all-american lifestyle but apologies to all the people listening who you just kind of like blew the fiction for them for the first time well but, yes, but i, I mean your point. in a world of professional wrestling where people aren't sure what's real and what's not rick flair the nature boy was the most real wrestler there was. He really was the nature boy kind of on and off camera. The nature boy wasn't a character he was portraying. Ric Flair's coming to town! Woo! And he's gonna do what he does best! And that's take care of business! Woo! I knew him before he was Ric Flair. He was Ric Flair. The fantasy that took over. Richard Flair was just someone that made it through one year of college <laughs> after that it was the nature i love to come out here and tell these people week in and week out that i'm the greatest athlete alive once i realized how good i was at it that then it became a disease you know this idea of excess and indulgence and over-the-top personality but like how would you define nature boy 
I think he really represented the excess of the 1980s. You know, greed is good. You know, Gordon Gekko was supposed to be a bad guy, but a lot of people looked up to him. Ric Flair was a bad guy, but he was the bad guy that people love to hate. I got a big house on the big side of town. I got life pretty much the way I want it. I'm wearing lizard shoes and a Rolex watch, and I got a limousine sitting out there a mile long with 25 women just dying for me to go, woo! So he kind of represented what life is like if you're the man. He had a saying, to be the man, you know? So he kind of represents that idea. So in that world of professional wrestling and the way that um, mostly male viewers were attracted to him as a, as a persona, you, you kind of go back and forth throughout watching this film about whether he's fundamentally a villain or someone that people feel an affinity with. I mean, I think he's a little bit of both, you know. I mean, he's got an incredible charm to him. You know, coming from anyone else, you might think this is obnoxious, but coming from him, you're like, yeah, this is cool. We were like, yeah, his shoes did cost more than everything you made last month, and that's awesome. I think as a kid, you know, it's just one of those guys you, you, you love, to, to, love to hate. Riding in private jets, surrounded by beautiful women, you either admired that or you despised that because he's rubbing it in your face. They all want to be like the nature boy but there can only be one i think this is in a very 30 for 30 way like a perfect nostalgia play for a lot of people probably listening right now who know about rick flair but maybe for those who don't know that much about wrestling can you just set the world of wrestling at the time you know rick flair then the rise of hulk hogan what what's what's the scene like sure well like the first real boom of professional wrestling was in the 1980s with the WWF and Hawk Hogan. I think everybody kind of, whether you like wrestling or not, you know who Hawk Hogan is. And, you know, the WWF, they kind of got the boom of wrestling going with WrestleMania and Andre the Giant and a lot of these larger-than-life characters. Ric Flair wrestled in kind of the B organization. They catered more towards the adult fan. They were a little more regional, more in the South, Southeast. Mm -hmm. WWF kind of catered more towards kids. So the NWA, they were, they were still a national organization, but they weren't as big as the WWF. Yet, Ric Flair was incredibly famous. And as a kid growing up, uh, the two biggest wrestlers, like the biggest dream match, was Hulk Hogan, the greatest good guy, and Ric Flair, the greatest bad guy. When Hulkamania rules, when Hulkamania lives forever, when Hulkamania puts you down on your knees. The whole country got exposed to it because of cable television. It became okay to be a wrestling fan. The NWA in the 80s was the Boston Celtics, the WWF was the Harlem Globetrotters. It was two separate styles of wrestling. Our product was directed at male, blue collars, guys that wanted to see a fight. But then one sort of fascinating thing is that you have this guy who appeals to, you know, a lot of white working class men and, and, and people regionally in the South. But then he has this like crossover mass market appeal. And you have this whole section in the film where you're showing athletes from other sports and even Snoop Dogg. 
As a kid growing up watching Ric Flair, he was very inspirational to myself and a lot of other hip-hop artists because he represented what we wanted to be. You know, the Kiss Dylan, Willin' and Dylan. We wanted to be all of that. Yeah, wear it, Diamond ring, wear Kiss Dylan, woo, Willin' Dylan, limousine right. Now give me two claps and a Ric Flair. He was like the Pied Piper to uh, defiant young athletes. We've always held him high in the black community because Rick is one of us. How did he make that leap out of this uh, you know, regional world as you describe it? Well, I, I think he was ahead of his time. He was hip hop. If you look at you know the rise of hip hop, the kind of braggadociousness of like, I've got the biggest car, the most money, the most women. You know, he was doing it before Jay-Z or before 50 Cent or before Snoop, there was Ric Flair. And I think he influenced those guys. Ric Flair had an aspirational lifestyle. Hulk Hogan, you get him to say straight up. He's 10 times better than I am. I mean, it's like, it's a no brainer. Did you expect him to say that? I think that's one of the biggest revelations in the film, to be honest with you, because for me, Hulk Hogan is kind of wrestling. Yeah. And for him to say that, I mean, really shows the respect he has for Ric Flair. It's like, you know, Larry Bird saying, hey, I got to tell you, Magic Johnson was a way better basketball player than me. And let me tell you why. And that's what Hulk Hogan does in the film to Rick. But then at the end of the day, you know, when they were actually rivals, was it still kind of fundamentally the Hulk Hogan show? I mean, Hulk does beat Rick when they get together. There are all these legendary stories about Hulk Hogan kind of always getting his way and always coming out on top as deferential as he may as he may act. What was the dynamic there? I think so. I think Rick was there to kind of put him over, as they say. You know, what Ric Flair was great at doing, which we touch on in the film, is he was great at making his opponents look good. You were one of the best sellers. What does that mean? That means I, I've enhanced other people's offensive skills. If a guy takes you over in a headlock, right? If you just lay there, nobody gives a shit, but if you're kicking your feet, your body's moving, just people in the audience, they follow the action, right? They think it hurts. You gotta make them believe it hurts. Oh, oh God! Biggest screamer and squealer and, and whiner in the ring. <laughs> and for a long time, you know, when Rick was the champion, he barely escaped with the title. He would lose for almost the entire match and kind of walk away with the belt. He wasn't this like dominant guy in the ring. But then, you know, when he was no longer the champion, he, he was kind of used in a way. He says that. He says he was used. He was kind of there to, to make guys just look good. I mean, he'd make you look like King Kong. And that's why they came back the next time, because I would just get out of that ring just barely as a champion and... They thought the guy was going to beat me, and we'd come back the next week and sell it again. Coming up, more with Rory about the price Ric Flair paid for living a life of excess, and then my conversation with Rick himself. I could be the nature boy tomorrow if I had my health. That's never going to leave me. All that after this short break. Well, I'll tell you, this is a great story. I 
go to the sports psychologist. And so you do the initial paperwork, you know, da-da-da. You know, how much do you drink a day? I said, I'll drink at least uh, 10 beers and probably five mixed drinks. He said, well, how many days a week do that? I said, every day. He came out of a chair like that, right? You drink every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and you've been doing that for how long? I said, uh, well, let me see, it's 1989. I started in 72. Uh, you do the math, almost 20 years. He said, that's not possible. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> that's the way it is, Doc. <laughs> Come travel with me for a week. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about that uh, that price he pays and that and the way that he was living his his private life. I mean, how over the top was the Ric Flair outside of the ring? I think he was more over the top than the one in the ring. You know, he says in the film he could just never go back to his hotel room and like watch TV. And I asked him why. Why can't you just go back to your room and like watch TV and hang out by yourself? I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. If I couldn't go out, I was miserable. When I was in like working in an area where there was no nightlife, you know, we were in a some little town, and we were staying at a at a Holiday Inn, and we went to the bar after the show, after the TV taping, in the hotel. There might have been ten people in the bar. Had one server. He ordered 137 kamikazes. Couldn't be serious, could he? Can't we just go in and order a couple of drinks? You buy a round, I'll buy a round, and and uh, have a little conversation, call it a night, but it's got to turn into a party. You know, people are telling these stories with a lot, you know, people are smiling about them, you know, They're, they think it's fun. But what what kind of impact did that have on the people that were closest to him, like his wife? There is this sort of like nostalgic smile on his face, even when he's describing, you know, the terrible things he did and the womanizing and, the, you know, he said he slept with over 10,000 women. Why are you telling everybody you're going to be at the Marriott? I don't know. <laughs> Nobody believes this, honey. Don't worry. Nobody comes over. <laughs> Why aren't you wearing your wedding ring on TV? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> when I kick five girls out of bed, I go, woo! And they go, woo, woo, woo! Because they know they've been with the world champion. Woo! Wrestling was fun for me. I went home, I was bored. You know, I can't badmouth them because I love my kids. But they know them too. I think you could be great at what you do and they're a good husband and a good father. I am the first to admit that I was really selfish about just wanting to be Ric Flair. One thing that's that as a real credit to Rick is he's an open book, I think, mm -hmm. in the film. I think he's he's showing everything, warts and all, and he doesn't hide from any of his behavior. Well, one particular moment in the film that really struck me, I think, gets at this notion of him being an open book, and I think you having developed a relationship with him. But you ask him point blank, are you surprised that you're alive? Which is a hell of a question to ask someone. Yeah, definitely. And I, thought, I think his answer... Um, was a little chilling. Yeah, um, you know, that's funny aspect. I think about that every day now. And that's not a happy thought. Yeah, I mean, I, there's no way that I should be alive after some of the stuff I've done. I guess it's like a two a two sided coin. On one side, it's like you know you're living as if today is the last day you're going to be alive, and you can say, "Wow, he really lived life to its fullest." But 
should you also be living as if you want a future too? You also show that, you know, after his heyday or whatever, however you want to characterize it, I mean, into his 50s, he is still, um, even after he has a sort of big epic retirement, still continues. He can't give wrestling up. And it is, you know, I'll just say it's like pretty heartbreaking, um, especially because in some way it seems like the older he gets, the more brutal the fights he participates in get. And there was something about that combination that was just really tough to watch. Jim Hurd had started trying to retire Flair in 1990. They thought he was too old. And, you know, 10 years later, he was still the guy they were going back to. Whenever they needed a rating, whenever they needed a great match, they'd still go to Flair. This could be the last time he walks the aisle, so to speak. I knew he couldn't stay away from this stuff. And, and again, I knew when they wanted him to go that he didn't want to go. Rick doesn't love Richard Fleer. I don't know that he's ever taken the time to get to know him or to find out who in the world he is. I think to Rick, you know, life and wrestling, they're not separate. Wrestling is life, you know. He loves wrestling so much. It's like breathing to him, you know. It's like... It really is this alternate universe, you know, when you think about wrestling, this alternate world. But he lived in that alternate world. So when he steps into the real world, that must seem like fake to him. Can you just become a man? Flair's got an expression. To be the man, you've got to beat the man. And I love it. And it's powerful when he says it. But the question is, what is a man? And, you know, part of being a man, and arguably the biggest part, is someday you got to grow up. Sometimes the man isn't always a man. So when does he finally start to reckon with reality? You know, and the people around him who are, who are real and are still there uh, as he enters the sort of later parts of his life. You know, I don't, I don't know if he has. Really? Um, but he has a relationship with his, with his kids. Yeah. Well, he has, he has a really good relationship with Ashley and she's a wrestler. Introducing first, from the Queen City, she is the NXT Women's Champion. The daughter of the Hall of Famer, the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. That's still a link for him back to wrestling. And and they are incredibly close, but I still think that in a way, uh, that's, that's, out of his children, that's the one he's the closest to. And I think a big part of that is because she's a wrestler. That was filmmaker Rory Karpf. Now, at this point, Ric Flair's wrestling career kind of speaks for itself. So when I had a chance to talk to Ric Flair, I wanted to know a little bit more about his life since leaving the ring in 2012. We covered a range of topics, including the death of his son, Reed, who was following in Flair's footsteps before an overdose in 2013. Rick also told us about his soon-to-be wife, Wendy. She's really helped him move on from Reed's death and through a recent health scare, which was so serious that he didn't know if he would survive to see the premiere of his 30 for 30 documentary. But we began by talking about why retirement had been so tough for him. It's hard to walk away from something that you enjoy. And after 40-some years, you know, I thought I could do it, but I was miserable the next day. I was miserable without the business. 
that was my life, you know, with the guys hanging out, you know, before the matches, after the matches, during the matches. You know, when you do that for 40-some years and you do it 365 days a year, it's kind of hard to to walk away from. I didn't realize how hard it was until I did it. And on top of that, then I started having issues with my son, which I was desperately in denial of. So, um, you know, it just, just compounded things. You mentioned your son. Police confirmed Ric Flair's 25-year-old son was found dead at this South Park hotel. When he died, did you feel like you processed it immediately or was there a delayed reaction? Uh, Well, I know how I dealt with it. I used to drink to try and get around it. Um, I can tell you this, that I was drinking at 10.30 in the morning. We found him at 10 o'clock. Hello? Hi, sir. Hello. This is the Charlotte Police Department. Did you need the police up there, yeah. sir? What's, what's going on with him? He don't call me. He don't call me. He's purple, please. Sir, sir, we do have police on the way. Let me get you over to the medics as well. Hang on one second. No, no. I, I'm at the whole... I understand it, sir. Let me get you over to the medics so they can try to give you some help, all right? Please. Yes, sir. Hang on one second. Do you blame yourself for his death? To this day, I blame myself. You still do? Mm-hmm. He was on my watch. You can't walk away from something you feel guilty for. I mean, someone can explain to you, you know, this isn't, it would have happened, da 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 da, da. I mean, there's a thousand different scenarios. But the bottom line is he was with me. He wasn't drinking. I thought he was a little bit high that night, but uh, I've seen that a lot, you know what I mean? And he went back to the hotel early. And I felt very comfortable that he was all right. He was doing something, but I had no idea that, you know, what would take place after he went to bed. And I'll always question myself as to whether or not, when I saw that he had a buzz, that I should have called 911 and the police. You know, on the one hand, he was like starting to follow in your footsteps. And did that, was there an element there of you feeling like, okay, I'm... I'm being a father to him in the way that a lot of fathers sort of help their sons build their careers and follow in their footsteps. No, I wasn't. I wasn't focused on that. But I mean, I, Reed was like my best friend. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I took him to Japan. I took him all around the world to wrestle. From the time he was, you know, twelve years old, we would laugh. He'd, you know, steal my clothes, wear my clothes all the time. I couldn't help but laugh. I mean, he'd show up in an Armani suit that I knew I hadn't bought him. <laughs> Wearing my alligator shoes, he'd just walk in like he was me. <laughs> well, you spend your whole career kind of building up that. Uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, it it was just a very difficult time. You know, you can't fix the past. So how have you been able to move forward? Well, I moved forward with Wendy. She lost a child in her life, and she understands the same thing. Different circumstances, of course. But it's, it, you know, I don't deserve to be able to run from it. You recently had a pretty bad health scare. Are you comfortable talking about that? Sure. What happened? Well, I'd had surgery three years ago on a, on a ruptured appendix. So I knew what 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 pain was and when when not to play around with it or, or take a tum. So I'd come home about 6 p.m. on a Friday 
And I said, God, when I got the pain in my stomach again, and it's, it's like the one before, you know. So she took me to the hospital, and I was a standing dead man. Kidney failure, respiratory heart failure, pneumonia, and septic all at one time. Was that the closest you've ever been to dying? I mean, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I just, um, in a coma for 10 days, they didn't know whether I was going to come out of it or not. I just dreamt the whole time. I can remember I dreamt that my daughter got married. I dreamt about my mom and dad. I dreamt about my kids. I mean, nothing bad. Do you think it means anything that most of the dreams while you were in the coma were about your family and not about wrestling? I mean, I don't know. I've never been in that position, but... um, you know, I think I think I've that I, I feel like I've accomplished everything there is to accomplish in wrestling. I certainly haven't accomplished everything I need to accomplish as a father, a husband, and you know, a soulmate to Wendy. Can you talk a little bit more about what the health scare made you rethink? Kind of how it how it changed your life? Well, it's changed my life drastically. I don't. You know, I used to have goals day by day, and I, I still do, not as bad as I had them before. I could stand, but I just couldn't walk. I couldn't twist the tops off a Gatorade bottle. Couldn't open a Diet Coke. Couldn't get the top off a bottle of Tylenol. That's how weak I was. From the time I got home, which was after two months, until the day the, the screening aired, I used to say to Wendy every day, you think I'll live to make the screen. I just kept thinking I'm going to die. And as you've gotten your strength back, have you changed your lifestyle at all? Or are you still drinking? Oh, of course not. God, I haven't even thought about having a drink. Are you kidding me? Is that a change for the positive then? Me not drinking? Are you seriously asking me that? Well, I mean, it's. I figure I After should ask you. After what I just it. told you? Of course it's a positive. And so is there a part of you, I mean, you know, you said the goal was to make it to the screening. Are there larger kind of life goals or emotional goals that you feel like you now have since you've been given this chance? Well, yeah, I want to live now. You know, I never thought about stuff like that. I want to live for a long time now. I'm happy. I've got young kids. I want to see my grandchildren grow up. I want to see my daughter go into the Hall of Fame. I'm watching when these kids grow. So on the film, Rory told us he showed you a copy of this film while you were in the hospital. Is that right? Yeah, he's no, not in the hospital, in, in rehab. Mm-hmm. Learning how to walk again. Yeah, he brought it and showed me again. And what was it like watching this film while you were in rehab and having to sort of... You know, it, the same emotion doesn't change. I watched it here in Atlanta the other night. It, it's always going to make me sad and make me cry. Is there any part of it that makes you happy? Oh, yeah. I'm very proud of the film in terms of, you know, it shows a lot of my success. I think if you're a wrestler, it really depicts how difficult and insensitive wrestling is. But we choose that for a living, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. Do you feel like, I don't know exactly the right way to phrase this question, but do you feel like there is... Uh, any element of Nature Boy left in you at this point? What part of Nature Boy is 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 still with you at this point? The character. Well, <laughs> I could be the Nature Boy tomorrow if I had my health. That's never going to leave me. I just learned how to control the character. I still feel like when I'm well, I feel like I'm 25 years old. 
Okay, I feel like you've probably been asked this in every interview, but I got to ask you about your most well-known catchphrase, the woo. You have just begun to find out what it's all about. Woo! 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 What is the secret to a good woo? Uh, you know, it's all, it's just in the feeling, makes people smile. You're making me smile now thinking about it. I hear people just do it at you when you're walking around. Yep. Especially in bars, which I, which I won't get to enjoy anymore. <laughs> Someone told me that you also woo in text messages as well. I do. So how many O's are in a woo when you text someone? Five. That's it's five. It's always that, five. That's five, man. <laughs> See, you're making me laugh. You want to give us one right now? Woo! 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 <laughs> Wendy, give him a woo. There we go. That's a Wendy Woo. <laughs> I hope we got that. All right. Rick, thank you so much for being generous with your time. Thank you. Because I appreciate the respect and the time. He sacrificed friends, family. I gave my entire life to the wrestling business. I paid the price. Wrestling was his lady. Wrestling was his love. That was his number one love. And I might be out of line saying this, but in my opinion, it still is. I'm the just feeling, wheeling, dealing, limousine riding, woo, just flying, set up again. They call, woo, the nature boy. Ric Flair is a legendary pro wrestler and the subject of the new 30 for 30 film, Nature Boy. You also heard from the film's director, Rory Karp. You can find Nature Boy in the ESPN app right now. We've included a link to it in the show description. Just click and you can start watching. You'll also find Nature Boy in the iTunes store available later this week. Remember, season two of our brand new audio documentaries launches on November 14th. That's one week from today. The season trailer is available in this feed. It's the file right below this episode that you're currently listening to. And if you haven't listened to our first season, you can find them all at 30for30podcast.com slash season one, or click the link in the show description. This episode was produced by Andrew Parsons with help from Ryan Mantel, Vin D'Anton, and Kate McAuliffe. We had additional production help from Aaron Lydon, Jenna Anthony, Jennifer Thorpe, Colin Fleming, Taylor Barfield, Tony Chow, and Alex Bowen. Special thanks to Trevor Young. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with Season 2 of 30 for 30 Podcasts.